Today's scripture comes from Exodus 20, verse 1 through verse 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray briefly. Lord, I pray that now your, your spirit would even now be preparing our hearts to receive your word, to admonish us, to encourage us, to change us, to work in us your will, that we may be people who live by your ways and glorify your name in all that we do. Amen. So today we are at possibly one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, the Ten Commandments. It's a passage that has enormous reach, even outside the, the realm of uh, Christendom and into the broader culture. The Ten Commandments uh, have been seen for ages as sort of an expression of the virtuous life. For many years, there were many uh, statues of the Ten Commandments, the tablets standing outside of, of courthouses and, and, and posted in different uh, places of, of civic government because these, these Ten Commandments give expression to the good life, the virtuous life, in a way that few other documents ever have. And so, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about, even just the, the way that recently the, the Ten Commandments have been removed from these different places like courthouses and, and, and other places for, for mainly religious liberty objections. And I actually really get that. I wouldn't want Sharia law posted outside of the courthouses, and I, I wouldn't want, like, the, the noble eightfold path. So I, I understand the objection, but the timing is still interesting. The timing's interesting because we are in the middle of a cultural shift. And so while ta the taking down the Ten Commandments might have been valid from a, a religious liberty standpoint, in terms of just sort of the spiritual condition of our culture, there's something sort of symbolic about ratcheting a pulley around the Ten Commandments and lifting them off the plinth. There's something symbolic about this. That move might have been motivated by a desire for religious liberty in government, but symbolic because right along with it has come this culture-wide desire, not just for religious liberty, but liberty from religion altogether. Liberty from any kind of higher accountability. 
So this is a sermon about the law of God. But before we can talk about the law of God, I think it makes a lot of sense to talk about the idea of freedom because the the two are sort of tied together. So when we think of a free person culturally, we tend to think about their freedom in terms of what they don't have to do. We tend to think of their freedom in terms of what laws they don't have to keep up. So freedom is sometimes thought of as freedom from law. You're free in as much as you are free from laws. And there's kind of a logic to this, right? So like the civil authorities should not be able to hold us to arbitrary, pointless laws. That would be wrong. And so as far as that's true, as far as we are free from arbitrary, pointless laws, we are, we are free, right? That's a, that's a good concept of freedom. If people aren't being hurt, then we shouldn't be legislating around that. That's sort of the, the idea of libertarian freedom, like the no harm principle, right? If, if it doesn't hurt somebody or property or violate a human right, then what, you, know, you, you really have to explain why it is that you're legislating around something. So there's, there's some truth to this idea that, that freedom is freedom from unreasonable expectations, un, unreasonable law. And most of us in our culture would be in favor of that. Libertarian freedom. You don't have to be a libertarian to love libertarian freedom. But even this kind of freedom from law has left some folk dissatisfied. And so some advocates for freedoms, for, for freedoms that allow you even to harm. They're thinking of freedom as a freedom to, to even allow them to harm. This isn't libertarian freedom. I'd, I'd call this libertine freedom, like the, like the French libertine writers, like the Marquis de Sade and, and the other group that are responsible for writing such, such awful material. So any idea of freedom that allows us to harm others, not out of self-defense, but basically just to privilege your own life, is libertine freedom. Freedom from law, even when a law is totally reasonable. I'm not trying to offend anyone right now, but I think pro-choice ideology actually falls into this category. So anytime that we claim to have a right over someone else's body. Anytime we define a human's value by their usefulness or their capability, anytime the protections a human can enjoy are based on their station in life, then we are right in the same category as uh, the people who designed Auschwitz and the gulags and chattel slavery. We're right in the same category. All of those defined a person by their utility and made some excuse as to why they have a right to harm someone else's body. So I think that falls into libertine freedom. That's a gross ideology. So libertarian and libertine freedom. One makes sense, the other's an atrocity. But they both approach freedom from this basic idea that freedom is freedom from law. Freedom from restriction. Libertinism is sort of the reanimated monster made out of libertarianism's remains. We're getting close to Halloween. I had to, I was trying for like a Frankenstein thing there. Uh, you're forcing it, Mike. Anyway, so, uh, I, all right, so hopefully I'm explaining this okay so far. We get this idea of freedom as freedom from restriction. We, that's how we sort of think about freedom. Like, restriction is bad. So walk into an Apple store and you will see this illustrated very well. There's not just a iPhone right? There's the red one, or the blue one, or the sequin one, or the one with the ironic mustache, or the one with your favorite sports team, or, or whatever. I'm, I'm unrestricted. I'm, I'm, you're given this sense of freedom, because you can choose between all these sorts of things. 
Think about the sexual revolution. What was that all about? Sexual liberation. Liberation. Sexual freedom, which basically meant that you were liberated from any sorts of restrictions on your sex life. And not only did they want to keep the law out of it, right? So, hey, as long as things are are consensual, anything's up for grabs, right? But they actually saw someone as more liberated the more they experimented, all right? So it's not just that they wanted to see freedom from laws. It's that they actually wanted to see norms pushed. So there was nobody during the sexual revolution who celebrated some guy who decided to use his sexual freedom to remain pure until he was able to responsibly and monogamously commit to one person of the opposite sex and procreate to the glory of God. No one was celebrating that, right? That wasn't what it was about. But if somebody was exercising his sexual freedom to uphold that norm, then shouldn't that be just as celebrated? No, it was was about pushing these sorts of norms, pushing what, what we were able to justify to ourselves. It was about not just freedom from law per se, but it was freedom from any kind of psychological restriction that should tell me that it's not all up for grabs for me. Freedom as freedom from law, not just the law of the land, but from restriction itself. In Christ, we are offered freedom, but it's not actually libertarian freedom, and it certainly isn't libertine freedom. It's something that blows both those categories out of the water. I want to return to this. So when we come to the scriptures, we get a very different vision of what freedom really is. When you get into it, the scriptural authors, they're not trying to get away from God's law. Freedom wouldn't be a doorway out of the law. Freedom if it was real freedom, it would actually become a doorway into God's law. It would become a doorway into embodying all that God expected out of human life and created us for. And so what you see in the scriptural authors is that they aren't eager to get away from God's law. They revel in it. They love it, right? So there's literally poetry. I mean, look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is over 400 lines of poetry, and basically the whole thing is about God's law. The beauty of God's law, the meaningfulness of God's law, the value of God's law. In one of the Psalms, the the poet talks about literally being kept up at night by the beauty of God's law. He's so fascinated by, by what you can behold in the law that he can't get to sleep. In the scriptures, God's law is this occasion for wonder. God's law becomes an occasion for wonder. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But possibly the biggest is that the law reflects who God is. The law reflects who God is. I want to take a look at the Ten Commandments now and just walk through them and kind of illustrate what I'm getting at here. And then after we do that, I want to return to this idea of freedom and and the law's relationship to freedom and kind of expand that a little bit further. So the Ten Commandments are often broken down into uh, what someone might call the two tablets. So the first tablet would be Commandment 1 through 4. The second tablet would be 6 through 10. And then the, the fifth commandment, which technically would fall into the first tablet, also kind of operates as like a bridge 
between the two. So that's kind of how many scholars have broken these down. So I'm going to walk through them. So it begins with the Lord saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So what God is doing here is he's, he's reminding Israel why it is that he has the right to give them commandments in the first place. He has the right because he saved them for himself. He is the one responsible for their freedom from slavery, freedom from slavery, but also freedom for him and his kingdom. He saves them out of one kingdom for his kingdom. And so a lot of times, you know, like what we're seeing here, you know, last week when, when we saw the, the beginning of the, the sort of the, the covenant with, with Israel, covenant was this treaty between uh, a, a king of some sort, in, in the commentaries you'll often re- read the word suzerain, but basically a king that, that had given some benefit to a people, and as a result, he has the right to tell that group of people his expectations. They're going to live in his kingdom, and so he's going to deliver to them the expectations, the way of his kingdom. So that's kind of what we're seeing right now. We're seeing the, the Ten Commandments. The, the, the king, the suzerain, is giving his people the way of his kingdom. And so it begins with, with this. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So this is a restriction. It's a restriction on how many deities God's people are allowed to worship. But it's way more than that. Why would God put a restriction on how many deities his people are allowed to worship? The biggest reason that we get out of the prophets is that because there really is only one. There is only one deity. There is the triune God. And everything else, all, all, these other, all these other deities, back in the past, they were literally made out of stone and wood and then, and then worshipped. Nowadays, they're a little bit more elusive. But it's anything that we put our security in, anything that we, that we are looking to to supply our ultimate meaning, anything that we're looking to to supply our ultimate happiness is a competitor for God's throne. Not just a competitor, it is a pretender to the throne. And when we hand ourselves over to those things, we are handing ourselves over to a terrible, devastating, destructive fiction. There is only one God. And so the very first commandment, out the gate, if the way of God's kingdom, God is building a heavenly city. He's going to create a certain kind of culture in that city, a certain kind of way of being in that city. In God's city, his people will know that there is only one God. And he is Yahweh. The second commandment. You will not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. One of the most difficult things for God's people to grapple with, and one of the most difficult things for many in, in our own day to grapple with is this idea that God has no body. That God is invisible. 
Not because that's like a, a sort of cheap Christian apologetic trick to avoid, like, well, where, where is he then? Oh, uh, he's invisible. Like, that's not what's happening here. It's that God, by virtue of what God must be to be the origin of all material life, God would have to be not material. Otherwise, he isn't the, materi- the, the origin of all material life. So God cannot have a body. That's just the nature of what God is. And that's, been a, that's a hard thing to, to get our heads around even now, sort of the implications working out. It's almost a weekly conversation with Edmund about, like, you know, uh, just how weird it is that God has no body, how interesting that is. And sometimes he'll just have to remind me sometimes after a long conversation about God, he'll, there'll be a pause and he'll turn and say, God has no body. You're right. So God has no body, but this is a very, this is a, a tough thing for God's people to sort of get their head around because imagine this back then, especially where if there's a God, there's a statue of that God, right? You can go to a place and you can see an image of Malach or Asherah and or Asherah and uh, and Baal or or any of the many many Egyptian deities, they would have had some sort of image, right? Something to to uh, you know populate uh, an object in my imagination that I can direct my worship to. And God flatly refuses to let His people build an image of Him because they will worship in truth. So even the, the, the ark, which is said to be sort of the mercy seat, the, the sort of hot spot of God's presence, the, the ark is a seat with two, two angelic beings sort of on either side, sort of uh, standing post at the seat, but there's nothing on the seat because they will not build an image of God. They will worship in truth. And so to worship in truth means that they must worship recognizing that there can be no image made of God. He is bodiless, one, glorious and holy, entirely set apart. Entirely set apart, not just because he's so good, but entirely set apart because he is unlike anything in the universe. We are a material universe. God is not material. And so God's people will not make an image of him, nor will they make an image of anything else to worship it. The most obvious competitors for our worship are going to be things that we can see, things that can be manipulated and touched. It will be homes or a living space or another person's body. And we will look to that thing as though it can supply for us what only the transcendent, bodiless God can supply. Because God is bodiless, he, he does not, he's not limited in space. He is, all of him, present at every point in the universe. And so in that way, Ashley and I tell our kids that he's smallest and the smallest thing and bigger than the biggest thing. Anywhere in the world, God is all there. And we, so he's he's eternal in that way. The book of Ecclesiastes says that there is in the heart of man eternity. 
that eternity has been built into the heart of man, that we are longing to be filled, not by an object limited in space and time. We are longing to be filled by God. St. Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We should not be satisfied with anything but the transcendent, invisible God. You shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So here what we're seeing is that not only is God transcendent and, and invisible, and therefore we're going to worship in truth, we're going to reflect that in our worship, but the Lord is of inestimable value. Nothing is of greater value than the Lord our God, and it will be reflected in the way we live. So we will not use the name of, the God, of God flippantly. Down to the way we talk, we will, we will honor the fact that there is nothing of more value than God himself. Later in Jesus' day, Jesus ran into folks who, who would take oaths in the name of the Lord, just arbitrary oaths that they may or may not have ever actually intended to, to keep, but they would use it kind of as a way of manipulating somebody. You know, so like, well, by, by the throne of God, I'll absolutely do this. You better believe. And it was totally just a ploy to, to get somebody to be like, oh, man, he just swore by God's throne. He must really be serious. But that, too, was just a way of taking God's name in vain. It was using the name of God, using God himself as a way to kind of manipulate somebody into believing them, right? How often do we do similar things, using uh, sort of Christianese to couch what is really just justification for sin? Taking the name of the Lord in vain. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So God will be preeminent in the lives of his people. And he will be preeminent not just in the way they speak and in the way they worship, but in the way that they relate to time itself. So all through those six days of the week, they're, they're working, 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 you know, finding ways to, to gather, to farm, to, to do whatever it is that they're doing, to hunt quail out in the wilderness, whatever they're doing, to, to supply their needs. They're working for that six days a week, and so they're relating to time differently. They're going to wake up. They're going to plow the land. There's a schedule to follow. And then suddenly there's the seventh day where they are to relate to time differently. They will not use that day for just utility, right? Just survival. Because humans are not made for just survival, we are made for the transcendent God and his glory. And so on the seventh day, there will be a day set aside for the Lord. And humans will relate to time differently on that day. And in doing it, it ends up reflecting sort of the order of creation. All things are made for the glory of God. The Lord created and then ended his work of creation. And so humans reflect the life of God when they work and then call an end to their work and relate to God differently on that day. The fifth commandment, honor your mother and father that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This one is often called the bridge commandment, or that's, that's sort of how it's described as almost like a bridge between the two tablets. 
So this is clearly a law, a commandment about how to relate to another person, how to relate to a mother and a father. And yet, with this commandment, we're introduced to a hierarchy, that there are authorities in the world. There are mothers and there are fathers, and they have real authority over our lives. And so we're instructed to honor that authority. But in honoring the authority of our mother and father, we're not just being invited to honor our mother and father, we're being invited to recognize that this hierarchy reflects something much deeper, that there is an ultimate authority over all of us. And so as we honor the authority of our mother and father, we are being trained up to honor the authority of God himself. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. God loves life. The reason why is because God is life itself. God is life itself. He is the ultimate source of life. He is not alive, respirating air and and relying on things for his life. He has life in himself. He is literally life. So that in the new creation, God's people will be animated by the very life of God. And so God tells us, do not murder. Murder is to, to wrongfully take the life of another human. There are times where he, he brings about the deaths of others. So capital punishment is part of God's law. But it's this murder in, in the scriptures is the taking of a human life that is innocent and the taking of a, of a human life that has no relationship to sort of an eye for an eye justice retribution sort of thing. It's just the taking of a life. Maybe for a crime of passion, or maybe it's just for convenience, or whatever. We will not murder, because the God we serve is life itself. You shall not commit adultery. God establishes marriage in the, in the second chapter of the scriptures. It's built into, so marriage is a, a human inheritance. It's not just a Christian inheritance. It is the inheritance of the human race. And so what we see is that from the very beginning, God gives us this way of committing ourselves to another person, specifically a man and a woman, committing to each other, to shelter the act that would bring about life. But in that commitment to one another, what we're actually seeing reflected is God's commitment to his people, God's commitment to his creation. And God doesn't break promises. And so we shouldn't either. God doesn't, you know, hold hands with his bride down the road and then look over his shoulder at the back end of another potential whatever. You know, like, like, I'm stretching the analogy. The point is, God is faithful, we will be too. Next commandment, you shall not steal. God respects property rights. (laughs) So, what we're seeing in the, the commandment to not steal is the honoring of work, the honoring of the blessings of God on people. Now, we do not have a right to what we don't have, and we don't have a right to what we haven't earned. We don't have rights that have not been given to us 
through gift or through earning. We will not steal. Because in stealing, what we're doing is we're, we're disregarding the sovereignty of God to give to that person what they have been given. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So in other words, you won't lie. Specifically, you won't use your words to manipulate another person's perception of reality, especially at the expense of your neighbor. Our words are meant to be an engine for truth, a vessel for truth. If you can't speak without a lie, then don't speak. And finally, you will not covet. And this one is especially important. We're going to come back to this one, uh, or at least the, the concept, even if I don't flag down specifically this commandment. This is interesting because it's not getting at a concrete action. The law against coveting is getting at the heart itself, getting at the impulse of the human heart. And what we're seeing here is that God is not just concerned with how we, we act, He's concerned with how we are, how we live. All right, so now since these laws ultimately reveal God to us, we don't get to pick and choose which ones remain relevant and which ones don't. God is one. He is unified. So if we're going to follow the way of the law, the way of the Lord, I mean, then we will, we will put an equal weight on all these different laws. God cannot be divided, and therefore neither can his law. You can't love God and hate people. You can't hate people and, and say that you love God, but also in loving God, we come to love other people. So, for, for example, for us as Christians, we can't just care about religious liberty and not care about the poor. Right, so that'd be one way in which we're, we're caring about our right to worship God, to love God, to keep the first tablet, but then we're not really paying much attention to the second tablet. Now, on the flip side, we can't, out of an interest to love others, uh, sort of, you know, give the, meet their needs or, or even just sort of like be their cheerleader for whatever lifestyle they want and never call them to honor the first tablet. God wants our worship. So right now, it's, it's, it's becoming increasingly common to be sort of religiously pluralistic, to, to, to just say, you know, like we all have these different paths to God, and just out of love for this person, I wanted to sort of honor their decision to, to not recognize the God revealed in Jesus Christ. You are not loving that person by doing that, and you are failing to love God. We must keep both tablets of the law. So the law is a reflection of God himself. It's also more than that. It's a reflection of God's kingdom. And this is where I want to return to that topic I was talking about at the beginning, the relationship between law and freedom. So again, we think about freedom as freedom from restriction, even freedom from law. So not, not the rule of law, not, not order or whatever, but sort of freedom from restriction. And this applies especially, I think, when we think about God's law. I mean, for many of us, I, I don't know that... Uh, many of us make a habit of like reading through Leviticus, <laughs> you know, I think like, we just tend to think of God's laws as this burdensome sort of thing. And so we, we, we desire a freedom from, from even just reading God's law. But the biggest problem according to the scriptures is not that we need freedom from God's law. 
It's actually more like we need freedom for it. God is building a city. He's been building a city since the beginning of all things. And the heavenly city is not a democracy. It's not even a republic. It is just a straight monarchy. God rules his city. And the law reflects the kind of life that is lived in the heavenly city. It's the culture of the heavenly city. Here's the thing. None of us fit in. None of us fit in in the heavenly city. None of us already are living by the culture of that city. Our lives are not the kind of lives that fit in. When God chooses Israel and he rescues them out of Egypt and he brings them to himself, he doesn't gather a people who are ready for his kingdom. They weren't living by the way of his kingdom when they were in Egypt, and they didn't really start living by the way of his kingdom after either. They didn't embody life as it was meant to be lived. They flirted with other gods. There was theft, lying. The stronger took advantage of the weaker. The social structure was, was turned upside down. There were cultic sex practices. It was a mess. They were not ready to live life in God's kingdom. And so when you hear the scriptural authors reflecting on this, they, they think about it as though Israel was held back by something. It's not like God's law was like, oh man, it's such a drag. It's like, we would love to inhabit this, but we are held back by something. We are restricted, not by the law, but by what the scriptures call sin. Humans are held back from the way of God's kingdom because we are ruled not by God, but by sin. And, and sin isn't just bad stuff we do. I mean, it is that. But sin is a kind of power. Anytime we sin, we are giving our allegiance to gods other than Yahweh. And so in that way, sin becomes a kind of slavery. We don't need freedom from God's law. We need freedom from slavery. We are not free enough. Humanity's problem is that we are not free enough from sin to embody God's law. And that's why the law seems restrictive to us. Because it is. It's a fence now for us. Because our slavery to sin leads us to operate in these weird ways, and so the, the law ends up becoming to us a fence. So imagine a man that wants to trespass, right? He wants to hop over his neighbor's fence into his yard. Maybe there's an apple tree and he wants an apple. I don't know. But in any case, he wants to trespass. What, what ends up happening there is he has a desire for something. In order to get that desire, he must, he must go into his neighbor's property and take what does not belong to him. And, and the law against trespassing becomes an additional fence. So long before he actually leaps the fence, the law is there. He's going to have to mentally leap the fence of the law, and then he can leap the fence into his neighbor's yard. And the law has this very powerful thing attached to it called a punishment. And so he has to know in his head that if he leaps this fence, the law might bring about retribution. And so nine times out of 10, he's gonna walk away and he's not gonna do it, right? He's not gonna actually leap the fence. So the law is going to restrict that impulse. But even for most of those nine times where the guy walks away, and certainly for the 10th time where he doesn't, he'll still walk away wishing that he could leap the fence. And that's getting at the real issue. Humans are made for God's glory. We are made to live under God's kingdom. 
And we get glimpses of God's kingdom and God's glory through the law. And the law sort of reigns us in, but it has no power to change us. If it could do that, then we wouldn't, then eventually the law would become obsolete. If our actual hearts could change so that we would have no real desire to leap that fence, to take what is not ours and what we didn't earn and what we didn't cultivate, if that desire was eliminated, then the law would go with it. The law is obsolete where human hearts are changed. So if you imagine a bunch of city planners getting together and they're going to construct a law for their city, and for whatever reason, all the people in their city would not even dream of leaping a fence, right? Like it would be, like leaping a fence, trespassing, it would be much like, you know, hey guys, city planners, let's get together. We, have a, we, we really need to make a law that no one should amputate their arm from the elbow down and, re, and put it on the top of their head. We should legislate against that. It's like, why? Nobody does that. You know, like, why? we're not going to make a law about that. Nobody has a desire to do that. You know, nobody's putting their arm on their head. What if it was the same for trespassing? Like, why would I do that? You're not going to legislate against it. There's no need. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And he has this, this series of sayings called the Antitheses, where each one begins, you have heard that it was said, and then he quotes the law. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I tell you that if you are angry with your brother, you have murdered him in your heart. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman with the intention of lusting after her, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. What he's getting at is this idea that long before the man leaps the fence, he's leapt the fence of the law. And that the kind of righteousness that God is looking for in his people is a righteousness that goes all the way down to the bottom. We won't murder. In fact, I, I will not look at another person in such a way where, where I would wish their end just to justify my own rage. I won't commit adultery. In fact, I, in following the Lord, I will not look at another woman in order to treat her as anything but a gift and therefore not an object. This is the sort of, sort of mentality that God is looking for in his people. Of course, we all fall short. But when that kind of righteousness comes about, what you end up getting is a people who don't just follow the law. They, they do beyond what the law could ever get them to do because their hearts actually belong to the Lord. Jesus is saying that if people were to actually embody God's kingdom, if it wasn't just their behavior but their hearts that could be changed, not only would you not need the law anymore, you'd have a people whose righteousness go beyond the written law. They're embodying the law so completely. They're embodying the culture of the heavenly city so completely that the law becomes unnecessary. It's not because they're lawless. 
It's because they are lawful. They are full of the law. It's a part of them now. That's what Jesus claimed to be bringing about. And he claimed to be bringing it about by flipping the script. So without Christ, if we want to be declared righteous before God, then we'd have to follow the law down to the letter, and then we'd be declared righteous. The problem is that never worked out. See sacrificial system. Now in Christ, the order is almost reversed. So in Christ, God declares us righteous up front so that we can follow the law. So that we can embody it in a way where it's not a burden, but it is literally a source of life. But now we're doing it out of freedom and gratitude to God. Because all things have been given to us in Christ. Because our place in the heavenly city is secured by his grace. And so we begin to embody God's law as we originally were meant to. Seeing it not as a burden, not as this thing where it's like, well, how much do I have to do to complete it? But instead, this, this spirit-filled, I want to be what God made me to be. Because I want to be known by him. The law ends up becoming just as important to us because we read it and we see God's character in it, but it's no longer a threat. It becomes a promise. Because in these precepts, the Ten Commandments, and in the law, we're going to be in the law for the next two weeks, what we're seeing is a glimpse of God's very character. We're seeing the culture of the heavenly city. In fact, I even think that there's something to be said for... Uh, for structuring society around the principles that we can identify there, the law becomes a glimpse of God's kingdom expressed in a particular time and place with particular cases, but it's still the character of God coming through his law, no longer as a threat to us, but as a glimpse of the heavenly city to come. Let's pray. Lord, where would we be without Jesus? The, the law would be only a threat to us, and we would have no access to your heavenly city. But God, in Christ, you are building us up into a temple. In Christ, you are reuniting the heavens and the earth and making all things new. In Christ, you are exchanging our dirty clothes for robes white as snow. In Christ, you are completing the good work that you started in us because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. In Christ, we can be confident that we will be presented pure and blameless on the day of Jesus. Lord, that is our hope. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. We, uh